Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents, and I have a distinguished uh, panel uh, this morning with us to discuss the overall picture of the past national election. And I'm going to introduce each one one by one, and they're going to uh, make a, a general observation that they would like to make about uh, their perception of the election. And I would like to begin with Natalia Linos, who is the executive director of the FX Center for Health and Human uh, Rights at Harvard University, uh, has three degrees from Harvard, including a PhD in epidemiologist. Natalia, what is your observation uh, that you'd like to make? So Frank, a lot of us in the public health community felt that this election would have been a clear win for the Biden administration because the Trump administration has failed so miserably on COVID. So my observation is that we were surprised that so many millions of Americans, despite the COVID failure, the disaster, the fact that we have 250,000 Americans who have died, would still not uh, vote against this leadership. And so in this conversation, I'd like to explore a little bit, how is COVID playing out, public health versus the economy, and, and what were these fears that maybe, um, you know, the, the different political parties uh, used in order to gain votes? Jeff Roy is the state representative, both for Franklin and Medway. Jeff, uh, what is your observation? Well, I will say this, uh, this election certainly lived up to its billing as uh, the most consequential election since the Civil War. And uh, I certainly saw that play out in this election. Uh, it was incredible to me, uh, the high voter turnout. That was encouraging to me. Uh, it was encouraged to see that uh, Joe Biden did get the highest number of votes of any person who ever ran for president in the history of this nation. And finally, the, uh, the division in America uh, remains. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, Joe Biden can be the uniter. And I loved his line about let's give each other a chance. Let's put away the harsh rhetoric. Let's lower the temperature and let's see each other again. Those are the things that stand out for me from that election. Dr. Michael Walker Jones, uh, former executive of Louisiana Associate of Educators, former work for the Mass Teachers Association, former town chair of the Democratic Party and uh, very involved with the Fourth of July Committee uh, and very involved overall in Democratic uh, politics, both on a local and national level. And currently, what are you doing, uh, Michael, uh, with the uh, university? Is it of Alabama? Uh, thank you, Frank, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, I am a, uh, I own my own consulting business now, and I'm a consultant for the Commissioner on Higher Education in the state of Alabama. So I work with all of the public institutions there, uh, and in particular, the uh, four-year institutions uh, in Alabama. And my observation of the election uh, is actually that, uh, and I'm not surprised, we are an extremely divided country. Uh, albeit uh, Biden won uh, pretty close to 76 million or 77 million votes, and it's still growing. Uh, Trump uh, 
is at 71 million and still growing. Uh, and also, <laughs> I'm beginning to feel uh, at my uh, senior age that there's something that we're missing here in the bend of our country and our spirit and our uh, uh, toward tribalism may be a result of our emphasis in too much reliance on a two-party system. And I'll get more into that in a little bit. And, and that's after being a lifelong Democrat. So there's a lot there for me. PJ is the executive director of Franklin Cable, has been for a while, but in his former life, he uh, did political ads, uh, owned uh, a lot of uh, media uh, companies or were involved with uh, uh, creative uh, media things that have now come into the movies. Peter, what's mm -hmm. your observation of the election? Well, I'll tell you, uh, if there was anything uh, that I've watched as uh, an ever-advancing issue is how it is that media manipulation run amok has grabbed the national zeitgeist by the throat. And it's a real issue with respect to uh, messaging, misinformation, uh, and how it is that people respond to the information and process it or don't process it. It's, a, it's quite an issue. And um, that's where I have the gravest concern. Some of it's been captured in movies like Wag the Dog, uh, a Dustin Hoffman film, which really kind of captured the essence of what goes on in the background of, of uh, political advertising. And I can tell you that movies like Network, Patty Chayefsky's great film, and Wag the Dog and similar, bottom line, they didn't go far enough. They seemed extreme in their day, but we have surpassed them all. Well, I'm Frank Falvey, and my observation is somewhat with Nat Natalia that half the country doesn't care if you get the coronavirus and die. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that the average age of death uh, is 80 years of age. Uh, which means a lot, a lot of old people are dying. And uh, they have more emphasis that the economy uh, should take precedent. And the other half of the country seems to be maybe a little more moderate on how the uh, coronavirus should be handled. But the coronavirus is something that is with us now. And apparently in New England, are going to be uh, worse in the coming months. So, who would like to who would like to say something a little more about the future of our uh, election process and uh, the election that just happened? Well, I think I could start by framing something. I believe that all of those secretaries of state, folks at the state level, did a Herculean task uh, very, very well. It is to their credit that so many states, uh, independent of whatever laws they work at at that level, uh, applied those laws uh, as absolutely fairly as possible with as much scrutiny and transparency as possible. Uh, we all were worried about far worse, but at the end of the day, 
I think that all the poll workers and all of their supervisors all the way up to the top deserve a nod for doing a great job. And that job is only just now starting to wind down, come to an end. So, you know, hats off to them. Uh, I have thoughts also about how that might be refined in the future. But, you know, they met that challenge. They met that challenge head on. You know, I I would just like to jump in with, you know, a little bit uh, of an observation that um, we have been through this before as a nation. And um, I have been watching and reading a lot of uh, John Meacham's observations about this. And uh, for those of you who don't like to read, uh, there's a great movie that uh, was adapted from his book, The Soul of America. And, you know, he talks about uh, events like uh, women's suffrage, how that divided America, the incarceration of, uh, of Japanese Americans in, uh, in World War II and the civil rights battle of 1964. And uh, our nation was greatly divided. I mean, I grew up uh, in the 60s, which uh, saw the death of John F. Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and these were, you know, uh, substantial events in the 60s. And then we moved to the 70s and we had Watergate. And I was a 13-year-old kid wondering uh, if our government would survive. Uh, what happened uh, with that presidency and Richard M. Nixon? Um, but we endured. We made it through it. And, uh, you know, I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, people went out and voted and exercised their right to vote and and did the right thing. Uh, you know, we have uh, one person who is trying to uh, turn that back, but he's not going to be successful. I know in my heart of hearts that on uh, 12 noon on January 20th, Joe Biden's going to be sworn in as the 46th president. That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, there is, there is some goodness out there. And we're going to turn the corner, not on COVID necessarily, but we're going to turn the corner on the spirit. I would agree with that. I also think, by the way, that you know what's going on now with the count all the votes and the concerns uh, expressed by the president, uh, uh, claims of fraud, et cetera, this is temporary. As you're saying, Jeff, this too shall pass uh, at the end of the day if he does not provide substantive factual evidence that can be quantified to an extent that it changes the outcome. Um, Ultimately, it just has to fade away. It has to. Uh, I have faith also on this issue with the Supreme Court uh, doing the right thing uh, because there has been so much work to get it right at the level of every state. It, at this point, has to be irrefutable. Pete and Jeff, I agree with you that it's temporary, but it does feel dangerous. It feels that he is undermining our, um, you know, elections. It's undermining democracy. And, you know, as someone, I I worked at the United Nations for over a decade. And if this was happening in any other country, we would be standing up and saying, you know, fair and free elections have taken place. We need to respect the rights and the will of the people. And somehow that is not happening here. And the misinformation is dangerous because, Our president is using Twitter in a way I keep on, I don't follow him, but I go and look at his tweets. He keeps on saying, I have won, I have won even today and yesterday. And that is dangerous because he has millions of followers who are not, you know, and and you spoke a bit about the media 
being divided, who are only following messages that are saying, so we're living two realities. Mm-hmm. And I worry about that. We are very much living two realities. Uh, and, and that polarization has, that's an interesting one, because I believe that that polarization has come from a media that has largely operated uh, completely without constraint. And, and that goes back to, uh, I'm going to tag it as being in the mid 80s, and notably in 1987, when the FCC abolished the Fairness Doctrine, which provided for equal time in the broadcast realm. But the broadcast realm has become diluted. Back then, you had three or four channels in the 80s that you could watch and maybe a smattering of cable. Um, but now it's television is everywhere with hundreds of channels, uh, some dedicated to very specific uh, venues and ideologies. And so it has enabled us to uh, silo our views. Well, and we, it's mirror gazing. Well, Pete, let's take that one step further, um, because television is not just a, mer- uh, a myriad of, uh, of just channels. Television is in our hands now. Yes. We can become our own television station if you want. Exactly. Uh, and it happens every single day. The media, and there's no regulation around that. Uh, I am surprised that, uh, and when I said earlier how divided we are, uh, I'm surprised that there's not much... Um, uh, exposure to the fact that many of Trump's supporters are now migrating to a new social media uh, enterprise. Uh, mm-hmm. And that enterprise is uh, on, uh, on, uh, on par with, or will be on par with Facebook soon, which means that not only are we a divided country, but we're going to start to segment our information, our media, our means of communicating with one another which is very dangerous mm-hmm. uh, without regulation. I mean, I, uh, you know, part of what's happening too is that the, the two-party system is starting to sort of skew us in a direction to where we think all choices are binary. Uh, I am to a point where, for example, uh, I don't understand or know what a conservative is anymore. I don't know what a liberal is. I don't know what a progressive is. I don't know what the right or the left is anymore. Because there are so many ideas and so many things that are being touted as one or the other, because we're trying to make life simple for ourselves. And this election was absolutely a sort of coming out party for that kind of danger in this country, in my opinion. You know, I'll say to follow up on that, um, you know, I always viewed the newspapers and the media as the fourth branch of government, because that would provide that uh, that oversight that we needed, and uh, it's the fourth no, estate, right? The fourth estate. It's no surprise that with the uh, you know the collapse of the newspaper industry nationwide that we're seeing this. And uh, I remember when um, you know the internet was. Uh, just beginning and, uh, you know, we were setting parameters for how we were going to regulate the internet. And it was concerning to me when the decision was made that we were not going to hold um, companies like uh, Facebook uh, and, uh, you know, other media platforms 
uh, responsible for the content that appears on their website. So if, if I write something in a newspaper and I libel or, or, or defame somebody, uh, they could sue not only me, but they could sue the publication that, uh, that hosted that material. We took a different approach with uh, internet websites and said, we're not gonna hold the hosts of this information responsible. And I, th I think that was a catastrophic decision because it's led to um, you know, pages coming up and absolutely no filters for the content. And, and I'm a big free speech guy. I, I will advocate for anyone to say, uh, whatever they want. But again, I, I have that uh, notion that, you know, your right to swing your fist ends at the tip of my nose. So we do need some regulation. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And I look at some of the things that I see out on Facebook and on the internet uh, as getting damn close to yelling fire in a crowded theater. And we're losing the ability to, um, you know, bring that under control. And that that's leading to real divisiveness and calamity in our nation. And I think that's something we ought to look at. I would agree. I, I put a little context on that. When I first uh, got into the broadcasting business, uh, and of course that was a lot of years ago, um, but uh, well before the FCC's fairness decree, I had to take tests with the FCC and the tests that I had to take were very complex and took two days. And one of the legal phrases that I fell in love with, a legal phrase that has really given me respect for the law and what it can do is that television and radio stations were licensed by the FCC to operate in the public interest, convenience and necessity. I love that phrase. Now, to take that further, the FCC exercised control over that mandate per force of the fact, the legal theory being that the spectrum, this ability to select a channel and put information on it, what was then called the ether, was a slice of a valuable national resource that was owned by the public and that the FCC was the agency empowered to manage that resource and dole out slices of it to benefit the public. TV stations became worth obviously tons of money uh, because they developed their respective channels, but they always had to operate in the public interest, convenience and necessity. Public service announcement, public affairs programming, pro bono work, call it what you will. There used to be a lot more of that than there is now. And the Fairness Doctrine basically unraveled a lot of what television stations were obligated to do. Now come the social media platforms. There's no ether. There's no national resource, save that they're all on the Internet, which is the Wild West. And these platforms, they love the word platforms because of the fact that it absolves them of any social responsibility even though they are the enablers of people who might want to yell fire in a crowded theater in their own way. We need someone else to jump in. <laughs> well, I, well, look, I, you know, I don't want to uh, uh, sort of, again, uh, follow with Pete in terms of uh, 
as another media person, because okay? also back in my college days and in my graduate days, I was in the media. Uh, I was both a, uh, uh, an announcer, a, uh, 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 had a talk show and a, um, uh, and a newsman uh, in radio and in television. We had rules. Not only did we have rules, but we had uh, but we had obligations. For example, on my talk shows, my talk shows had to be uh, delayed because if there was any speech that came across that violated any of the FCC rules, I personally could be held liable and I could lose my license if I didn't try at least with due diligence to edit, uh, you know, that uh, uh, those violations of speech. Uh, today, you can go on the internet, you can say anything you want to say with any language you want to say, and it's unregulated. Uh, there are cable channels, for example, where you can do exactly the same. Uh, you can say anything you want to say, and you can basically use any of the language that used to be uh, uh, regulated, but now that language is unregulated on some of the ca cable channels. Now, why is that important? Because as we have seen, if there is a part of the electorate that is exposed to lies, let's say. Call them what they are. Pure, unabashed lies. Uh-huh. And yet they see those lies as coming from a reliable person because they like this person or, you know, they like their personality then we are in danger because that person with his or her influence can now start to reign control and and start to mold the uh, uh, the thought processes of a large segment of our population and i think we are at that point i am absolutely shocked at the in this election how many of those 71 or 72 million people, and actually even some of the 77 million people on, uh, on Biden's side, it's not just one side or the other, but how many people have very little understanding, for example, of the pandemic that we're in? They hear information from all different sides. Some of them don't know what to believe, and therefore they say, well, until it impacts me, I don't think it's important. Or some people are highly sensitive and hypersensitive. You know what? I don't think my employer is doing me right by asking me to go to work. Why didn't someone someone protect me? So where is then the, the modulation? And this election, I think, showed us that that modulation is critical to, as you're saying, Pete, the ethos uh, and fabric of our society and our democracy. No one's curating. That's what we, that's what we did when we were in journalism and running television and radio stations. There was a curating process which has gone away. You know, the um, I, I'm going to recommend yet another film here. Um, watch the Social Dilemma, which oh, uh, yeah. it's a 2020. Uh, um, it's a docudrama, but it really explores the development of social media and uh, the use of algorithms to tailor what we see instead of reading um, one newspaper like the, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, where everybody sees the same information and can evaluate that information from, from one source, uh, algorithms tailor the information that shows up 
on your news feed. So um, it, it's striking the the damage that it's doing in so many in so many ways. And I, um, you know, I I was started out uh, as a computer scientist before I got into um, social animals. Um, but uh, and I was taking calculus and learning how to write algorithms. Little did I know back in 1979 that those algorithms would be used to create such harm in our in our society. And uh, um, you know that's another area to look at. So I've I've recommended two films today. So uh, let's get you uh, get you out to the movies. That is a great film. Social Dilemma is really very very well done as a documentary. Yeah. Can those two films that we mentioned, are they old enough? Is there a way we can uh, air them on public TV here in Franklin? Uh, that we cannot do because those are film. There are film rights involved. So right. we would have to. Buy is, there a way, is there a way that we can refer people to, to some way of seeing those films? Well, I'm sure that they're available on many of the streaming networks, be it Netflix, Epics, uh, Comcast's service. There are there are a dozen streaming sources uh, that probably might have access to the film. If you are a Comcast customer and you simply said the candidate, you know, the Robert Redford film would probably show up somewhere. Um, and uh, that's also a good one to watch, along with the others that I mentioned. Um, Wag the Dog, clearly a film that has to be out there. It's a classic. Um, so, um, oh, and another one that I would really recommend, Natalia will like this one. It was done in the early nineties and remarkably prescient. Uh, give me a second here. It was about Contagion. a pandemic. Contagion. Contagion. Right. Contagion. Contagion. Right. <laughs> I actually watched Contagion <laughs> back in March as a training film. <clears throat> and yeah. I was sitting there going, O to O to the M to the G. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, and not the leader can speak to this. Uh, every term that has now become part of the uh, sort of public discourse uh -huh. discussed in that 1990s film. Absolutely. Uh, tracing, um, trying to create a vaccine, uh, trying to find the, uh, 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 the social distancing and then trying to discover what the virus was all about. Was it airborne? Was it, uh, touching Was you, you know, you, you know, what's the structure of the, uh, of the virus itself. Uh, and right down to the testing, as a matter of fact, of the, uh, of the vaccine, uh, and the controversies around that. <clears throat> but let's, if, if we could back to the election. One of the things, too, that I've noticed, and, and I noticed this during my work with, because uh, one of the things we didn't mention that uh, uh, Dr. Lenos uh, ran for Congress in the 4th Congressional District, um, and she ran on a platform of being an epidemiologist, but at the same time being a scientist, and at the same time being an activist, and at the same time being a person who wanted to go to Congress to represent the district, not in the sense of just passing laws, but in the sense of looking at how can Congress 
be much more of a help to this country in terms of addressing uh, our needs during this pandemic time. Mm. And one of the things too, and not to Leah, I'd like you to you know sort of talk about this. One of the things we discovered was <clears throat> money in an election is key, not because it helps the candidate to sort of spread their word or get feedback from the uh, from the electorate, but simply just to do nothing more than, uh, and I'm going to use a word that may sound negative, but it's not intended to be, to propagandize his or her uh, 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 platform, but that may or may not reflect the needs of the constituent. And one of the things that I was pleased about was that Natalia was not that kind of candidate, mm-hmm. but she didn't win. Albeit, everyone said, we hear what you're saying. We understand, but you're not the person who is being drummed into our uh, our eyes and our ears at this point. But you've got a real message out there, and we like what you're saying. Natalia, what was your uh, uh uh, yeah, I mean, I think Michael, I completely agree with you. Money for me, for someone who entered politics, maybe naively in the sense of, you know, I'm an epidemiologist, we're in a crisis, I have the know how, I have experience that is relevant, both from the UN and the New York City Health Department. I'm here to serve that sort of, you know, desire to bring people like me, maybe younger people, maybe moms, maybe you know, first generation Americans to our political scene was, you know, I stepped up because I felt that that was welcome. And then realizing that the obstacles are exactly what you said, Michael, money and fundraising and not simply the money, but also what money means in sort of in in signaling. So people said, there's no way you're going to win because you have a 10th of the money. You've entered this race when some of your opponents have already raised one or $2 million. And it was frustrating to hear that over and over again, that money was a signal of success and it wasn't the ideas or the issues or the relevance of your expertise for a moment of time. But, you know, I can say that I was proud that despite having a tenth of the money and a much shorter time period, I did much better. You know, the if you look at per vote, the amount of money I spent was about $10 versus $100 of some of the other candidates. So that was quite an interesting thing that actually money didn't matter, but it does. It does because if you don't have, you know, people said, you, if you can't go on TV, people won't know your name. So is there a way for us to, to enable more diverse voices in our political system? And that is a conversation that is worth ha- having right now, especially in the De- Democratic Party, where some of the more progressive um, parts feel left out, where there seems to be division. And what do we mean by representative government? Do we need more women? I would say yes. Do we need more moms? I would say yes. Do we need more immigrants? Do we need more people of color? Of course. So how do we how do we get there? And how do we use this kind of awakening or this this moment to to, to get us there? Um, so that would be really interesting. But on the COVID piece, I do want to add one more piece as an epidemiologist. And Frank, you mentioned the average age being you know older, 80s or so. Um, there's also a very stark divide on in terms of race. So the average, uh, you know, we say that one out of 10 white Americans knows someone directly who has died from COVID, but it's one out of three black Americans. And I think that experience makes an important difference. You know, you have seen family members, friends die and the rates of death, people, you know, black, Latinx, indigenous Americans are dying at much younger ages. 
you know, prime of life, 50s, 60s. They're not in their 80s and 90s. And, and both of those issues are important, both age and race, ability and disability. These are things that, that matter. And we have been unable to convince the people who are not seeing it directly in their lives that this matters and this matters for our society and we are a society that cares and therefore we should be putting in place measures to protect everyone not just our immediate you know network of three or four family members one of the things that i'm looking to observe um, with change in leadership uh, from president trump to biden is clearly Biden's message now needs to take root with respect to masking the CDC, perhaps now taking a stronger stance as they have this week. And just, you know, there's that tenet that the, the tone of a company or an organization or even the country is set at the top. In other words, the executive at the top of the organization sets the tone for how things go and and what the what the particular uh, feel and the way that you communicate within the organization happens, we're about to go through a major change. Clearly, we have two very different executives here, um, and um, I'm looking to see whether or not uh, where Joe has come out and said, "Let's take a look at each other," as you said, "Let's give each other a chance," um, and whether or not that can have a positive effect on the extent to which people begin to take masking and other uh, means of mitigation much more seriously. Because even now, and with the holidays coming up, that remains a serious, serious, serious issue. Now, Taylor, mentioning masking, I, there's all sorts of uh, debate about what type of mask one should wear. Do you do you shed any light on on the masking and what does it really make a difference? What mask you wear? It does make a difference, uh, but the biggest difference is between wearing or not wearing. So wearing is is absolutely everybody should be wearing a mask. Some types of masks, like the N95s that healthcare workers wear, they protect in both directions. Some of the ones that we wear, um, including you know just a simple two-layer mask, is mostly so that if you're coughing or spitting, that those droplets don't spread to others. So it's mostly about protecting your neighbors, although I think the CDC recently said that there is some evidence that it also protects the person. But the majority is that the idea is that if everybody wore a mask, then these droplets would not be spreading and so everybody would be protected. But those masks don't are not you know fine enough, like the very fine particles you can breathe them in. So if you have, you know, which we know that now um, you know, COVID is spread in the air as well as through droplets, that those masks don't wear work as well. You should always be wearing a mask when you're indoors. And that's why I personally have issues with Governor Baker allowing for indoor dining because you can't wear a mask while eating. And so that to me is, is, is a red flag. We should be wearing masks at all times to protect the person who is waiting your table, you know, the people who are working in those uh, spaces. So, uh, but I would love to hear from, from uh, you know, Jeff, I hope it's okay that I'm calling you that instead of Representative Royce. Please, please. Uh, Jeff, from sort of the idea of, you know, 
we we see Biden coming in and doing something at the national level, but at the state level, what are what are you able to do, even if he doesn't? And and how does that? What do you foresee? Um, sort of, what are your hopes for that communication and and interaction? Well, my ultimate hope is uh, getting the vaccine out, and uh, it's incredibly encouraging to me. And I've been staying in touch with the folks at Pfizer because, as a matter of fact, they are manufacturing the vaccine right here in Andover, Massachusetts. And that certainly is um, is a great answer. But uh, in terms of masking, um, you know, I have to say, I think Massachusetts has been incredibly, um, you know, incredibly at the top of the, the curve in terms of uh, mandating the use of masks. Uh, you know, even, even if you're outside, uh, now you're you know required to wear a mask. I was encouraged that the CDC came out and did say that it uh, now uh, they do believe it helps in both directions. It just seemed to me uh, somewhat inconsistent. I didn't see how physically it couldn't help protect you. I know it's not as good as an N95, but it's better than nothing. And to me, it's a more of a cultural thing that uh, we've turned this mask use issue into a political discussion as opposed to a scientific discussion. I would love to see us return uh, to the notion of science and make our decisions based on uh, science and get, uh, get people to feel comfortable that, uh, that they're protecting others. It's you know, it's getting us back to this notion of a we community as opposed to an I community. And, uh, you know, I try to have those discussions day in and day out. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with these issues, uh, you know, in every piece of legislation we pass. On the other hand, we've got people who repeatedly say, um, you just got to suck it up. This is, a, uh, this is what life is like, and uh, you can't destroy the economy in the process. And I hear that, but, you know, I think of those 240,000 families in America who will sit down for their Thanksgiving dinner uh, this year and won't have a person uh, sitting at that table this year and um, trying to get people to understand that life is precious and uh, to lose just one life is, is a horrible, a horrible thing. I actually was at a meeting last night and I could overhear a conversation at the table next to me where, um, you know, this notion that this is all a hoax and uh, that, you know, the doctors are reporting COVID deaths uh, in order to get more money. I, I'm like, that goes right back to what you were talking about, Michael, earlier is, is we perpetuate these lies and then they become the, um, I don't even want to call it truth, but they become the conversation. And I'm sitting there saying, how can you sit there and spew that drivel? But they do uh, become. I, I, but I was not going to walk over to that table and bring an end to that conversation. <laughs> but um, I, I really think we are under a lot of pressure to culturally embrace the contagion that surrounds us and follow the science. I don't know if that answers your question, Natalia, but uh, that's 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 what's going through my mind. But they do become the truth. 
for those that say it and believe it. Yeah. The 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 one one thing we're not saying is that the uh, people that voted for Trump believe in their heart every single thing that he is saying. It it and no matter whether you're a college person or you're working in in whatever job, it is a belief that is as firm as a Christian will say. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It it is not something that is ever in the near future going to change. Looking forward for to four years from now, I mean, they're still going to believe that that Trump is absolutely right and was right, no matter what has changed. And as we're winding down, I would like to ask. Is in four years from now, should we still have mail-in ballots? Should we still have registration based on a, a license, uh, a driver's license? I mean, are these things are susceptible, uh, suspicious by a large half of the country that don't believe that they are accurate or honest? Well, uh, I'll, I will put in a plug for mail-in voting moving forward, because I was I want to make voting um, as easy as possible. And I want people to exercise their right to express their opinion about who should be their leader in the way that is most convenient for them and will encourage them to get out at the polls. And if, and if going the day of the election is important to you, that should be available. If mailing it in from your home uh, is, is uh, your preferred way, by all means. If early voting, and we did two weeks of early voting this year, if that's your measure of comfort, let's do that. The thing that uh, impressed me the most, we had the largest amount of civic engagement in the entire country. And in Massachusetts, we set a record for voter turnout. That is the best thing I think we can do for our community, for our state, for our country, and anything that we can do to get people to exercise the franchise of voting, uh, I'm going to support uh, moving forward. And, you know, there is no evidence whatsoever of any widespread fraud in voting throughout the nation. And uh, we'll see that explored over the next uh, couple of years. But I think the evidence is clear that the poll workers take their jobs seriously. They do a remarkable job. Republican, Democrat, I don't care what party you are, those folks uh, care about democracy, do their job. They do it responsibly. And if there are cases of uh, misappropriation or, or fraud out there, those folks are going to are going to turn it in and uh, and there'll be investigations. And I think you'll see no evidence whatsoever of any widespread fraud in our elections. Well, uh, as I said, so as Jeff, I, I, I would agree with that. However, I don't think it's fraud that we have to be cautious of in the next four years. It's voter suppression. There oh, is clear absolutely. evidence. There is clear evidence across this country that in the next four years, we're going to see more efforts to suppress the vote especially in those regions where, whether it's the uh, state legislature or, um, uh, or local municipalities, 
who don't like the outcome of a particular election or don't particularly care for people who are trending in one direction or the other <clears throat> are going to do their best to come up with ways to suppress the vote. I have, uh, you know, I have uh, a true understanding now that we are truly living here in Massachusetts in a bubble. Yes. When we move outside of this state, when you go to places, uh, and I know, Jeff, you've recently been to Georgia, uh, uh, and God bless you, you got to hear a Sunday school taught by, uh, uh, you know, I think one of our wonderful citizens and former president, Jimmy Carter. But when you're in that state, especially in that church, and you're surrounded by people who are not as Christian and as outgoing as Jimmy Carter, they don't like the idea that Atlanta and Savannah and Augusta are becoming meccas of voting trends that they don't like. So look for, in that state now, uh, major efforts by that legislature to try to suppress those regions, those people. And in many instances, that falls upon the mainstay of, I think, our democracy, and I'm going to say this with every bit of humility, the mainstay of our democracy is actually people of color. We believe in this country. Mm -hmm. We believe in the democracy. We believe in the Constitution. And the part that I absolutely love in the, uh, uh, in the Constitution uh, and in the Declaration of Independence is the idea that we're always striving to be a better country. And for another discussion at some point, Frank, we need to talk about, uh, you know, those changes that we're, you know, we're looking at from 20 to uh, 2024 and beyond, mm -hmm. because many of those changes have to come from our looking at ourselves and our environment now. In 1776 and 1778, 1779, there was no internet. It so wasn't? The, it, <laughs> no. There were airplanes. Uh, uh, even though there may have been airports, <laughs> and Washington did miss the opportunity and stuff to secure the airport in, in New York. However, <laughs> however, it is important for us not to fall into the trap of these folks who call themselves originalists, who want to go back to, well, what were the framers thinking? The framers were as flawed as flawed can be. And hopefully we're striving to become much more perfect than them. We'll never reach it, but let us strive to be better than that. But well, many Michael, of our, yeah, go, go ahead. Michael, well, I, the, I, uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly <laughs> on that point. But I will say that the framers knew they weren't perfect. Yes. And when they created this government, and just look at the back of a dollar bill, and you'll see the great seal of the United yes. States. And one of the pieces of that great seal is a pyramid. Yes. And that pyramid is unfinished. And it's unfinished because they knew that you know, they had created an idea. And it was up to the generations that followed it to finish that pyramid. And so that's that's great recognition that we they knew we weren't perfect, and uh, but we can still hope and try to achieve uh, those American ideals. And I am looking forward to joining with you in the fight against voter suppression because I am truly 
um, you know, happy that there's voter engagement and we're having discussions like we're having today. I think these are discussions that should be taking place everywhere uh, throughout the nation. So help me in. Well, a number of you have to uh, go to other meetings and I I don't want to. So so I think we need to wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Natalia Linus. Dr. Michael Walker Jones, Jeff, I, I, you don't have a doctor in front of your name. You have what in front of your name? I actually am a Juris doctor, but uh, we, a, we don't refer Dr. to Juris, ourselves as doctors. <laughs> Dr. Juris, <laughs> Jeff Roy, and Pete, do you do you have a doctorate? At least you should. No, I'm I'm just I'm just the helper. I hold a screwdriver while Frank gets the real work done. <laughs> <laughs> well. The executive director of Franklin Cable is absolutely phenomenal in all ways in which you've just seen and heard today. So this is Frank Falvey on behalf of all the panelists saying we look forward to uh, coming uh, over the radio and the listening audience in the very near future. Thank you very much. <laughs>